heads bowed, eyes closed. And remember that God is here. God is speaking. Are you listening? keep your heads down and eyes closed. Um, but I'm going to ask you to pray for me um, because obviously I've had no time to uh, go through this at all. So you can just pray for me that I'll have a sound mind and be full of God's Spirit. Amen. Complete and lasting victory over pornography and other addictive sins is completely possible for everyone in this room. Complete and lasting victory over pornography or other addictive sins is absolutely possible for everyone in this room. No exceptions. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. That's enough right there. But God is faithful and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with every temptation will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Every temptation comes with an escape plan. That means you are not a victim of lust. The victims are the women who are bought and sold in order to satisfy our evil desires. We are not victims. We are the problem. With every temptation, there is a way of escape. That's what we want to talk about today. The, verse, the first step towards victory over sin is surrender to God's authority. The first step to victory over sin is surrender to God's authority. Because God will never empower an unsurrendered will. So what we're going to do this morning is, in a bit, we will talk about surrender. Um, but before that it occurred to me that some of you in this room have never heard the real gospel before. Um, what Paul calls the message of the cross. Paul says that this message sounds like foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. And it's not a very popular message in fact, I grew up in a good Christian family and I went to a fairly decent church three times a week and I never heard the message of the cross in a way that clicked with me until I came to Totally His. Isn't that crazy? Chances are you might not have heard the actual message of the cross. The message of the cross that is the power of God. So we need to go over that this morning. And after we do that, we're going to take a small break. And there's two young men here who God has led in victory over pornography. And they're going to come and share with you about that. Because we can't have any of us thinking that we're the exception and that it's not possible. I think many of you in this room have been sold a fake Jesus. If Jesus hasn't brought you to the cross, 
where your life for your sake on this earth has come to an end, you haven't met the real Jesus. So we need to start at the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Have you ever wondered, what is the big picture? Like, I'm a big picture guy, and sometimes um, I, I get tired of hearing uh, messages about little things because I want to know how it fits with the big picture. What's the important thing to understand? What is God doing overall? Have you ever wondered that? Let me ask you this question. Have you ever been in a situation where you felt like you were on the outside looking in? Like maybe a time like last night. I remember um, some of my first youth conferences when there would be a time of worship like that and people are moved emotionally. I felt like I was on the outside looking in. And for me, that's because I was. I was on the outside looking in. They did have something that I didn't have. Consider that possibility. It's not true of everybody, but it may be true. But what is the big picture? What is, what is the big story of God? Well, God created, and then He created Adam and Eve, and He put them in the middle of a beautiful garden. Everything was perfect. The temperature was great, the grass was always green, and the animals actually got along with each other. That's funny, because they don't now. (laughs) But even better than these things, there was nothing but overwhelming joy, innocent love, and the awareness of being fully understood, yet fully accepted. Everyone could look each other in the eye with no shame. Doesn't that sound amazing? That's what it's like to have God as king. That's what it's like to live where God reigns. Then God introduced Adam and Eve to freedom. Eat from any tree in the garden. Then he introduced them to choice. But the fruit in the middle of the garden you must not eat. For on the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Why did God give Adam and Eve the opportunity to disobey him? Because without choice, there can be no real love. So, if there was one girl left on the earth and you said to her, you're the only one for me, baby. That wouldn't mean a whole lot. She actually is the only one for you. You don't have any other options. But if there's four billion girls on the earth and you say, you're the only one for me. I can't imagine anybody better. That means something. Because you have a choice. Does that make sense? God didn't want robots. If God created you to serve Him and obey Him primarily, He has the angels for that. That's what they do. They serve Him and obey Him. But God created you for a relationship. The primary thing that God wants from you is love. So He gave us a choice have to be able to choose not to obey Him if our choice to obey Him is going to mean anything. God's command was sort of like a fence for man. As long as they stayed inside the fence of His one command, everything would be fine, and life in Eden would continue forever. But Satan wouldn't have it that way. He came and sowed seeds of doubt about the goodness of God. His basic lie was that God was keeping a secret. He was withholding the best from them. You could be like God. 
Don't let Him hold you back. Take the fruit. You don't have to live under His authority. You can make a better life for yourself without Him. Mankind bought the lie and jumped the fence of God's one command only to find that on the other side there was no life or peace or purpose. But it was too late. There was no re-entry. That day, sin came into the world. And with sin came death. Now God said, the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. So we know that the death came, the death that came was not primarily a physical death because they didn't die that day. The death that came was a spiritual death. What is spiritual death? Well, what is spiritual life? What is true life? Jesus said in John 17, when he was having a conversation with his father, he said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the eternal God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The word know there is a relational word. It's a word that has to do with a continuous and well-maintained friendship. It's the intimate knowledge that can only come through that kind of relationship. So what is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying life, true life, abundant life, the kind of life that goes on forever is found in friendship with God. That's what life is. But, not a buddy kind of friendship with God. It's more like the kind of friendship that I have with Colin Brazier. Colin Brazier is a good friend. I'm so thankful for him, and I love him dearly. But he's also my boss. And part of our relationship depends on my cooperation with his will. My will can't dominate in our friendship or it will cease to be a friendship. Okay? That's the friendship with God that is life. And on the day that sin entered the world, so did separation from life. What does that mean? That friendship with God came to an end. So that's the story of the garden. Man rebelled against God as king, not realizing that losing the king would be would also mean losing the kingdom of Eden. Despite being expelled from Eden, God made a way for man to come back into a submissive friendship. That way was through sacrifice. Since that day, the quest of man has been to get back into the garden. But this quest has failed over and over again. Because there's no way to have God's kingdom without having God as king. You can't have the joy of God without the authority of God. You can't have the peace of God without the authority of God. You can't have the eternal significance that only God can give to your life without the authority of God. You can't have God's victory over sin without His authority over your life. can't have the garden kingdom without the king. But people have tried. Solomon tried, right? He tried everything. He tried everything to find something in life to grab onto, something meaningful. He tried over 700 women, all of them. He tried wisdom. He tried education. He tried building things. But he couldn't find life anywhere. He had more money than anybody else. He had peace in his kingdom. He had authority. And at the end, he said, it's all just nothing. 
There's nothing to grab onto. I couldn't get back into the garden. What about Andrew Buchanan that talked to you guys? He tried to get back into the garden, right? He tried to get back into this place of experiencing God and everything that he tried came to nothing until he said, God, you can be my king. Then he came back into the garden. Even our own nation has tried to do this. We were one nation under God. We tried to be a garden kingdom, but slowly we have rejected the king. Then there's the journey of Israel. The next big story after the garden is the journey of Israel. Israel was meant to display to the world what it was like to have God as king. When God was the king of Israel, things went pretty well. He brought them out of slavery. That's pretty significant. And slavery there is a picture of sin. And he brought them into the promised land, which is a picture of Eden or the new Eden to come. He lived among them in a tent and eventually in a temple. But they were always separated from his presence by a thick curtain. That's important to note. He was their king, but they were always separated from him by a thick curtain. Then Israel did the worst thing that they could have done. You guys remember what it was? They started asking for a different king. They wanted to be like the other nations around them. So God warned them, but eventually gave them what they wanted. And after that, things completely tanked for Israel. Fast forward to the New Testament and a man arrives in town claiming to be the Son of God. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He also says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. The thief Satan, the tempter in the garden, he comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I came that you may have life and have it more abundantly. Do you realize what Jesus is saying? He's the door. Like he's the door back into the garden. He came so that we could go back in and have that abundant life. So there's a way back into submissive friendship with God. A lasting way. A permanent way. And that way is through Jesus. See, everyone who wants to get back into Eden has to have a background check done. If they have any history at all of rebellion against God, they can't get back in. Jesus was the first man that ever lived perfectly with God as king. He said, I only do the will of my Father who sent me. And then as 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin in our place, even though he had never sinned so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, God gathered up all of our background checks, all of our failed background checks, and He nailed them to the cross, and He punished Jesus for them. Can you imagine the pain of the Trinity as they experienced separation for the first time ever? There had never been anything between them until now. But as Jesus hung on the cross, he cried out, My God, 
my God, why have you forsaken me? When Jesus took his last breath, there was a giant earthquake and that curtain in the temple tore in two from top to bottom. And again we see Jesus was the door and the door swung open. The veil of the temple is torn. There's a way back into Eden. Then God made billions of copies of Jesus' clean background check. There's one available for every human that has ever lived. So how do you get one? Well, to enter the kingdom of God is to receive God as king. Admission into his kingdom is a free gift. And so is his benevolent authority. But some of you in this room still don't see God's authority as a gift. You see it as a threat. And that's because of the pride in your life. The pride in your heart. And this is going to be the next thing that we address. But before we do so, I'm going to have... These guys come up and share with you. So, Jeremiah, could you come up first and share? So the first step towards victory really is surrender. My fear this morning is that many of you have been inoculated from the true gospel by a false gospel of the sinner's prayer. You think that because you prayed a certain prayer at a certain time, you are on your way to heaven. In many cases, this is not true. Throughout the rest of our time, I will be using the words heaven and hell. We have a pretty good idea of what heaven is like. It's a lot like the Garden of Eden, but everything has fuller meaning in life, and this garden will last forever. Unfortunately, we're much less familiar with hell because people are afraid to talk about it. But refusing to talk about something doesn't change its reality. Hell is real. We just recently had a really good friend whose wife got terminal cancer. She knew she had a matter of time to live. And guess what they did? They talked about her cancer every day. And she came to peace with it. And he came to peace with it. And she died in peace. She was ready to die two weeks before she died. And after she died, he was at peace because they faced the reality. If they hadn't talked about the cancer, would she have died of cancer? Yes. Not talking about it doesn't change the reality. Hell is real. Revelation 21, 1 through 8 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first time, and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will be no more. And neither shall there be mourning or crying nor pain anymore. The former things are gone. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, or look, I am making all things new. 
Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give to drink from the spring of the water of life without payment. Absolutely free. Drink, be satisfied forever. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. But for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral. Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Citizens of heaven will experience the unhindered presence of God and the absence of all evil. Imagine the best things that you have ever experienced in your life being your constant experience. We are told that in the presence of God there is fullness of joy and at His right hand are pleasures forevermore. But hell is the opposite of heaven in a lot of ways. If heaven is full of light, hell is full of darkness. If heaven is free from pain, hell is full of pain. If heaven is free from sadness and crying, hell is full of sadness and crying. Hell is a place of endless pain and sorrow with no one to comfort and no hope of escape. Mark 9.43 says, If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and go to hell to the unquenchable fire. Revelation 20.15 says, If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Luke 16:22 The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And I don't have the rest of that um, verse written down, but it, it describes the poor man, uh, it describes the rich man rather, suffering in the fire, asking if some, Abraham can send somebody just to give him a little bit of water to relieve him. Matthew 22:13. The king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Second Thessalonians 1.9 They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. Revelation 14.11 The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest, day or night. These worshippers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Thomas Watson was a guy who lived back in the day when people actually believed what God said about hell. I've updated his language a bit, but this is what he had to say. This is what it's like in hell. They would like to die, but they cannot. The wicked shall be always dying, but never dead. The smoke of the furnace ascends forever and ever. Oh, who can endure this to be ever upon the rack? This word forever breaks the heart. The torments of hell continue forever. If all the earth and sea were sand and every thousandth year a little bird should come and take away one grain of this sand, it would be a long time before that vast heap of sand were emptied. Yet, if after all that time those in hell had some hope but they do not. This word forever breaks the heart.
I'm not here to apologize for the reality of hell or explain to you why it's fair. I'm just here to tell you what God has said and ask you to order your life accordingly. In the end, when everything is revealed, no one will say that God was unjust. In fact, we will give him endless praise for how merciful and gracious he is. Many of you have been inoculated from the true gospel through the false gospel of the sinner's prayer. You think that because you prayed a certain prayer at a certain time, you are on your way to heaven. But remember, Jesus is the door back into the garden. He's not just a door. He is the only door. He is the only way back in. So we need to look at his life and we need to listen to what he said about how to gain admission. This is what Jesus taught about how to get into the garden. You are either all in or all out. As long as you're the one deciding what to give to God and what to keep for yourself, you are still the one deciding. You may think that he is the passenger in your car, but he is not. That Jesus is just a figment of your imagination. Jesus is only a hobby for those on their way to hell. For citizens of heaven, he is much more than that. He is everything. Jesus will never be content with partial surrender. If you haven't given him everything, you haven't given him anything because you haven't given him yourself. You haven't died and gotten out of the way so that he can live his life through you. Whenever anyone determined to follow Jesus, he always pointed right at their idol, right at their greatest affection, their greatest pursuit. And he said, go destroy that, then come follow me. This is the test of discipleship. Jesus does not have any disciples who have failed that test. If your idol is still alive and well, if it's still the one calling the shots, if it's still your dominant desire, if you are still consistently falling to it, then you are not on his path. You are not a follower of Jesus. You are not his disciple. To put it as bluntly as possible, you are not a Christian. You are not a citizen of heaven. This is a hard word. And so I want to attempt to prove this to you from God's word. Look at the example of the rich young ruler. He came to Jesus and he asked, What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus said, You know the commandments. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't cheat people. Honor your parents. And he said to him, Teacher... All of these I have kept since I was a kid. Now, if you read through Jesus' ministry, Jesus usually calls out liars because he searches the heart. But he didn't call this man out, which implies to us that this man is probably telling the truth. He probably had kept all of these commands. He probably was a very moral person. His morals would probably put ours to shame. Okay? He did things well. He had a good desire. He wanted eternal life. He came to Jesus running. He knelt at his feet. He said, good teacher. He was earnest. He respected God. He wanted eternal life. But none of that counts. 
That's not the key issue. Jesus points at the key issue. He says, you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor and then come follow me. Disheartened by what Jesus said, this man went away downcast because he had great possessions. This man had good intentions, but seeing that his idol was wealth, Jesus pointed it out and asked this man to destroy it. For those who love God, you see this as an invitation of Jesus. Be free from this consuming passion. Come live for something so much greater. Be satisfied in me. I will provide for you. I will satisfy you. I will protect you. It's an invitation to freedom. But for those with idols in their heart, this is a threat. Ultimately, the young man walked away because he loved his stuff more than he loved God. Did Jesus run after him and lower the standard in order to gain another Christian? No. Jesus let him walk away. I'm sure Jesus was deeply grieved, but he will let you walk away too. If you are unwilling to deal a fatal blow to your idol. God is the eternal inheritance of those who treasure him supremely in this life. But those who do not treasure God supremely in this life will not inherit him in the next. In short, there is no place in heaven for those whose greatest passion or pursuit is something other than God. This should not be in the least surprising because heaven is about Jesus. And if you didn't want him here, why would you want him there? 1 John 3, 6-10 tells us, No one who abides in God keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. This word sinning, keeps on sinning, is talking about a pattern of sin, but a pattern of defeat to that sin. And if this is your life, if you have had a pattern of defeat to sin, and you have never seen a point of victory over it, you have not seen God. You have not known God. Why is this true? Because to see Him is to love Him. Little children, let no one deceive you. In other words, if anyone tries to tell you something different than this, don't listen to it. It's a lie. It's Satan's lie. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. But whoever makes a practice of sinning, whoever is in this pattern of giving over to sin, is of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. No one. No one. No one. You're not an exception. Just because you live in watered-down American Christian culture. No one born of God keeps on sinning. Because God's Spirit lives in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this, it's evident who are the children of God. Whoever practices righteousness is of God and whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Period. Let's look at another example. Jesus walks up to Levi in Luke chapter 5, verse 21. After this, he went out, Jesus went out and he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. 
he said to him, follow me. This meant death to Levi's career. This meant death to his wealth. Jesus said, I don't know if I have a a place to sleep at night. He said, foxes have holes and birds have their nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. So he, he says to this rich, affluent man, come follow me. No guarantees. The only guarantee is you'll lose your job. And leaving everything, Levi rose up and followed him. This was the choice. Say no to your idol, say yes to me, or say yes to your idol, say no to me. There is no gray area. You cannot have him and have your sin. It is impossible. You are not on his path. In Matthew 16:24 through 26, Jesus tells his disciples, "If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, let him take up his cross, and let him follow me. Whoever would save his life, try to hold on to it, try to preserve it, will lose it. But whoever loses his life, whoever lets it go, For my sake, he will find it. He will find that real life. For what profits a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? Or what shall a man give in return to his soul? So what does it mean to lose your life for God's sake? It means you come to a point where you say definitively and forever, my life, for my sake, on my terms, is over. It's over. Jesus, you can have the authority. You can be the boss. You can have control of my future. You can have control of my relationships. You can have control of my career. Some of you will not let God have control of where you go to college. Some of you will not let God have control of what your job is going to be. Some of you, I believe some of you feel called to ministry and you're saying no. If you haven't come to a point of saying, my life for my sake on my terms is over, you are not on his path. You are not a disciple. You are not a Christian. You are not on your way to heaven, no matter what prayer you've ever prayed. That's the message of the cross. But the Son of Man didn't come to condemn the world. He came so that the world through him could be saved. He came as the door, the only door, the only way back into the garden where life is good, where joy is full, where your soul is satisfied. Why all the effort to say no to abundant life? It's pride. Pride is the only way that, only thing that will keep you out of the garden. That you think that you can be the first human ever to create a garden as good as Eden without God as king. Don't deceive yourself. Scripture and life is full of examples of people who have tried and failed. Everyone can bow your head and close your eyes with me.
Um, I'm going to have you look up, actually, for five more minutes. I just want to feel like the Lord wants me to share with you my story briefly. And that is that I stiff-armed God for a long time because I thought I could be the exception. I wanted unconditional love. I wanted that good life. I wanted satisfaction. And I thought that if I could be good-looking enough, fast enough, smart enough, funny enough, popular enough, that I wouldn't need God to help me with anything else because that's all I wanted. But God in His grace, He let me get some of those things. And not saying I'm good at anything, but He let me come to a point in my mind where I felt like I was pretty good. And guess what? It didn't satisfy. And I got to a point um, where I was here in my second year and I was studying Jesus' life in the book of Mark. And I saw somebody who had way more potential to gain a following with power, with miracles, to impress people, to gain the unconditional love that I was after. But he never did anything for himself. And I was so disappointed because I knew he was perfect and that meant there was something wrong with me. I was like, oh man. And at that time, I sprained both of my ankles so I couldn't be the fastest person on campus anymore. And I was a dish crew captain and I was really proud of my dish crew. I actually had a plaque up in the kitchen that had our dish crew name and our record time and I wanted to see if anybody could beat it but I knew nobody could so I had it up there just to say, hey me, me! And um, at that time people started complaining about our dishes not being clean enough and so my level of confidence in that fell and my grades at that time plummeted for no apparent reason And I had my first ever argument with my girlfriend, which is, which was Claire. Um, and I remember I was on my way back to school after this argument with Claire. And I just felt like this is me at my best. Like I have done everything that I possibly could to build my kingdom. And here, here we are, just as empty as ever. So I said, finally, through tears, God, I give up. Like, I, I'm done. You can get in the driver's, driver's seat. You can have control over my life. And he taught me Psalm 103, that he forgives all my sins, all of them. He heals all my diseases, that broken person is being restored back into the image of Christ. He redeems my life from the pit like he paid a high price to bring me up out. He redeems your life from the pit. He satisfies my desires with good things so that my youth is renewed like the eagles. And I can tell you I am happier now as a person who is under God's authority than I have ever been in my whole life. It's a good life. It's a satisfying life. I've never had so much joy. And all the things that I felt like God was going to ruin, He has given life to. I have a hope. I have a future. I have a job that I love. It doesn't pay near anything. I love it gave me a life that I never would have chosen and it's better than anything I would have chosen. He's a good king. He's a good king. And all your counselors will tell you the same thing. Now you can bow your head and close your eyes. The false gospel of the sinner's prayer has one cross that crosses for Jesus We believe that He died for our sins and He was raised for our forgiveness. That's a partial gospel. 
But Romans 10 tells us if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That verse has two crosses. To confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord is to say out loud, Jesus, you are the boss now. I'm done living my life for my sake. I'm going to get up on the cross. There's a cross for me. My life for my sake on this earth is going to come to an end. And the second cross is just as beautiful. It's just as much of a gift. And that cross is for Him. You believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. That Jesus got up on a cross too. And He took the weight of all your sin. And He cast it into the sea of forgetfulness. He paid the price so you would never have to experience the wrath of God. It's not God's will for anyone to go to hell. He hates the idea of hell as much as you do. It's His will to bring you back into the garden. That's why He sent His Son to be the door back to abundant life. but how do you get that clean background check reserved for you? You say, yes, God, you can be king. I'm done living for myself. You can be the boss now. You take the will. You be in the driver's seat. You make the decisions. You make the calls. I'm on board. Whatever you want, I know it's going to be good. It's going to be better than anything that I could have done for myself. Brian, could you? I'm going to have Brian sing a song over you and keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed. This song has an echo of Eden in it. I want you to listen for it. This is God's invitation to you.